So tonight we're concluding the series on the three characteristics or three marks of, that are on all aspects of conditioned experience. Um, some of you have just joined us, but uh, you'll just catch the last bit, very important bit. Uh, the first two of the characteristics being anicca or impermanence, how this will play in tonight again too. I mean, they all really play into each other. Um, but just how things are continually changing, therefore unreliable, not a place that lasting happiness can be found. We find the second mark of these experiences, that they are unsatisfactory in their nature. And so tonight, moving into anatta, the impersonal insubstantial nature aspect. And this is, in many ways, such a wonderful, freeing characteristic to become familiar with, to know and understand. And the implication is what's freeing, is what's liberating. And yet, for many of us, when we get to this characteristic, uh, we think of no self, not existing, annihilation, it's threatening, fearful, anxiety producing. It's also the characteristic that is harder to wrap your brain around. And in fact, the harder you try to wrap your brain around it, the more of a spin you go into. And, you know, it's like a it's not easy for the rational mind. It uh, can be quite challenging. And yet, really, it's just a fact of life. It's something that uh, can be quite simple in the experience of, where we might, for a moment, touch into the simplicity of Simply breathing, breath being known, sensations being known, sounds being known. And there not being this self-referencing point that says, I'm hearing, this is my body, here I am. You know, it's just these processes being known. And there's quite a difference between when we have made identification with these processes, when we take them to be self, we view them to be self, and when they are simply known as they are. It's actually a huge shift and very freeing. I remember uh, just uh, on a, I was practicing with Sayadaw Utejaniya and was, you know, in the throes of dukkha, experiencing the unsatisfactory nature. And it was intensifying, you know, really getting strong. And he said, Anatta will save your life. So there's a few things I want to say in general. One is, when the Buddha gave these teachings, he was giving 
practical teachings, not philosophical teachings. He was so dedicated to teaching that which leads to liberation and leaving aside what doesn't aid, what doesn't help. He, you know, he didn't get caught up in these philosophical discussions. There was actually a uh, monk named Malia Pahagun who once asked him, who is it that makes contact? Who feels? Who craves? Who clings? And the Buddha said, this is not a valid question. Now, this is not a question that is going to lead to the end of suffering. Now, we could sit and ponder that for lifetimes, and it wouldn't be helpful. But he did really point to how identification with experience as if it belongs to us, as if there is a solid I, me, or mine to whom this is all happening, this view of life of self leads to suffering, leads to pain, leads to sorrow, grief, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. An interesting piece is this all happens due to an erroneous misperception. This perception of self, personality view. This, you know, taking things to belong to us. It causes pain. He didn't ask us to believe this. He asked us to look into our own experience. The experience of this body and mind to really explore for ourselves clinging, where this identification comes in, to explore for ourselves what this sense of I is hanging itself on. He talked about how, in short, clinging to any of the five aggregates is suffering. And these five aggregates are this body, physical, the physical realm, um, feeling, the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling tone of experience, perceptions, what we perceive, 
volitional formations or the conditioning agent in the mind and consciousness. That when there is clinging to any of these aggregates, and these aggregates he offered as a breakdown to what we experience in mind and body. And when we cling to any of these as being self, as belonging to me, this will be painful. He said of all of these aggregates that they are both impermanent and uncontrollable. Because they are impermanent, they induce fear, distress, and anxiety that the happiness is never lasting. He was once asking monks whether these aggregates were impermanent or permanent. And, of course, when we look in our own experience, we see that they are impermanent. And then he said, is what... Then what is impermanent, suffering, and subject to change? Is it proper to regard it as, this is mine, this I am, this is myself? Of course, the response was no. When we look in our own experience and see that what we so continually call self, just looking in a day of practice, you know, the different conditions that arose and pass away again. You know, in one moment there was pain. In another moment there may have been happiness. In another moment, sadness. In another moment, thinking. In another moment, mental images. In another moment, fear. Now, what do you take out of that and say, this is myself? This is fit to be regarded as myself. None of it lasted. It was all impermanent. Being impermanent, it couldn't bring lasting happiness. These are all dynamic functions that are not graspable, not worthy of making home. Narada Tara, in his teachings on Anatta, says, the so-called being is like a flash of lightning that is resolved into a succession of sparks that follow upon one another with such rapidity that the human retina cannot perceive them separately, nor can the uninstructed conceive of such succession of separate sparks. As the wheel of a cart rests on the ground at one point, 
so does the being live only for one thought moment. It is always in the present and is ever slipping into the irrevocable past. What we shall become is determined by this present thought moment. When we look at our experience and mindfulness sharpens, we see this continual succession of sparks and life changing so rapidly. The second aspect of these aggregates that helps us to understand anatta is that they have an ungovernable nature, that they are not something we can willfully control. He pointed to that we don't have control over feelings, we don't have control over thoughts. Uh, And if we did, if we really had control, we would not choose to harm others. You know, if this was really self, we would not choose to harm others. We would, you know, choose to have pleasant experience. And we would be able to control this. But it's ungovernable. And we see that in our practice. You know, we can't sit down for an hour and think, okay, I'm not going to think for the next hour. I mean, I can't do it anyways. <laughs> but, you know, we, we can't get up in the morning and decide, today I won't experience fear. You know, today I won't experience sadness. When conditions are ripe, those states will be there. When things come together in a certain way. The clinging that we do to these five aggregates happens in two different ways. It happens both through appropriation and identification. With appropriation, it's where there's a grasping, desire, lust, and one appropriates experience as if possessing it. With the identification, we identify with these aggregates as being a basis for conceit, the sense of I am, or the view of self, myself, the concept of me. So just looking at the ways that we take ownership I mean, in our lives, we tend to take ownership of this body, my body, my life, my children, my family. So many things 
there's a sense of possessing. Sitting here on retreat, my cushion, my sitting space. And we tend to give value to certain things. And the stronger that value is, the more it's mine, the increase there is in suffering. If we're sitting here and my body starts to hurt and there's strong identification with owning it, it can lead to a lot of agitation. You know, we can sit here, um, you know, the, the, the knees start to hurt, and my knees, and my knees, I have to preserve my knees, and, you know, leading into fear and anxiety. If I don't move, I'm going to have to leave in a wheelchair at the end of the retreat. I'm going to need surgery. And, you know, it just leads to this whole proliferation. And then, you know, we've probably all had experiences where pain comes in the knees, and it's just simply known as maybe burning, stabbing, heat. And, you know, there's no sense of I, me, or mine, and it passes. There isn't the tensing around it. There isn't the tightening. There isn't all the proliferation. Actually, in my own life, I had a very profound experience around this. I had had chronic fatigue for a number of years, and I had fought it, really fought it. Uh, I had tried to work against it, to keep going, um, just continually pushing myself, denying that I had it, and getting more and more exhausted and getting sicker and sicker. And it was before anyone knew about chronic fatigue, so you know there wasn't even a name for it, and tests weren't revealing anything. Oh, and it was you know, quite a nightmare. And then I started doing Vipassana. I went to a meditation retreat. It was a four-day retreat. And at that retreat, it was, you know, in my life, I had tried doing all these different kinds of uh, healing work and was, you know, really on the, kind of on the go with this. And it was exhausting. And then in that retreat, I just sat. The sensations were there. The, you know, I just let it be. I didn't do anything with it. And at the end of those four days, I was virtually healed. And, you know, it's not that I want to set up that that's what we do every time we feel sick and we'll be better, because that's not the case. You know, there's many different plays of conditions. But when we stop resisting by that identification, that taking ownership, when we really just let something be as it is, so much energy is freed up. There is such a lightening of the burden. And then, you know, even if the pain continues, it's not tied up in a sense of who I am. It's not mine. It's not the definition. Just see in your practice when mind states, thoughts, 
memories are seen as mine. Taking ownership of what that feels like. It's so painful. And when it's just seen as a thought, when it's just seen as a memory, when it's just seen as a mind state, a process, an unfolding dynamic process, it never sounds like much, and yet the shift is huge. Maybe that's why the Buddha in the beginning didn't want to teach, because he said it was so subtle. This is from Ajahn Buddha Dasa, Thai forest teacher. It is usually proclaimed eloquently that birth, aging, and death are suffering. But birth is not suffering. Aging is not suffering. Death is not suffering. Where there is not attachment to my birth, my aging, and my death. At the moment we are grasping aging and pain and death as ours. If we don't grasp, they are not suffering. They are only bodily changes. So the first way of clinging to the five aggregates by way of ownership. The second way is through taking them as the basis for conceit of I am or the view about oneself, myself. This is the identification. Sitting here in the meditation hall, I am sitting, I am happy, I am bored, I am depressed. I am here to get enlightened. I am superior. I am inferior. I am conceit. There's a teaching from Venerable Analayo. He's a Western monk, and I think this just describes very well this as it relates to the five aggregates. He says, these aggregates are experienced as embodiments of the notion, I am. From the unawakened point of view, the material body is where I am. Feelings are how I am. Perceptions are what I am. Volitions are why I am. And consciousness is whereby I am. In this way, each aggregate offers its own contribution to enacting the reassuring illusion that I am. (laughs) I am conceit. It's subtle. 
the sense of I am. It's said to not completely go until complete liberation. So, this to me says, make friends with it. (laughs) Otherwise, it's tough going. And with that, I've just found to pay attention to where there is this sense of I am. To just see it as another arising experience. And to be interested in it. It it is very interesting. You know, at first, we can often think that the sense of self is so strong, it's always there. And that can be like so many things we have thought. Uh, You know, we come on retreat and we have a strong back pain and we think it's always there. You know, it's, it's been there for a long time. Maybe we had an accident. We think it's always there. But then we look and we see it isn't always there. When we really bring mindfulness to any of these experience, any conditioned experience, we see these characteristics. We see they're impermanent. And so is this sense of I am. And, you know, it happens around experiences. It happens through identification. And if we just take an interest, first just allowing it to be known when it's there, not like, okay, got to get rid of I am, you know, that's not the truth, get rid of it, but just recognizing. And then, you know, letting the mind rest there. Because it's like any other conditioned experience. It will go. But if we, you know, tense, tighten, identify with it more and move into reaction to, it feeds it, flourishes, strengthens. But letting it just be something that we explore, this notion that I am. And then we have this view of self, of me. A personality view. Sakaya Diti. Concept of me. Looking to. Into this view of me, idea of me. No, on the level of the body, when we sit and, going back to knee pain, when we experience that, often what comes with it is a picture of my knee. It's just a picture. No, but we, we really solidify around it. We tend to reference all of our experience through not just a a visual image, but a view of self, that everything becomes self-referencing. And yet we do have these moments where there is 
just these processes arising and passing. Moments of bare attention, simplicity, sitting, hearing, touching, not referring it back to this view of self. The Buddha offered contemplations around the five aggregates, a way of looking at them that points towards lifting up the false understanding. He talked about contemplating these aggregates as this is not mine, this I am not, and this is not myself. This is not mine is the antidote to the appropriation of self. It's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. No? And so it's, it can be in a moment where there's a sense of this ownership, just remembering, this is not mine. I've found it very, very helpful in my own life. And of course it has to be, it can't just be that intellectual understanding, but it points the mind in the direction of right view. This I am not is the antidote to conceit, the I am. I am this, I am that, I am better than, I am worse than. Just is. This I am not, whatever it is. This I am not. And this is not myself, is the antidote for views, the concept of me. This is not myself. However it arises in our experience, it's contained within these five aggregates and the different ways that we cling, identify, This clinging is sustained by ignorance, by not seeing clearly. In not seeing clearly, we see that which is impermanent as permanent. We see things as being a true source of happiness, as belonging to self. But this is all based in ignorance. The antidote to breaking these spells is through wisdom, seeing things in their nature. There's been a couple of other helpful phrases that I found from other teachers. Seda utejaniya, you know, when sadness is there, to know this is the nature of sadness. 
This is knowing it in its nature. To know the nature of anger, to know the nature of fear, rather than my anger, my fear. Ajahn Sumedho uses the phrase, it's like this. Sadness is like this. Calm is like this. Frustration is like this. It really helps to give that spaciousness where we tend to glom on this sense of self. Knowing things in their nature. We find there's no point in appropriating anything. There's no point in identifying with anything. And that the self is merely an erroneous fabrication of thought based on ignorance. The landscape opens. The spaciousness. And we find it through simplicity, bare attention, wise attention. It's been so powerful for me to just let the attention be very simple without all the conceptual overlays. And if the conceptual overlays are there, to simply recognize it as such. So making sure that we're not trying to make anatta, or you know, not trying to get rid of something. We just want to see things in their nature, as they are. To do this, relaxing, turning up, being present. That willingness to be simple. another teaching from Ajahn Buddhadasa. To understand Dhamma sufficiently is the first step, but understanding it is not the end. We now see that as the mind begins to let go, to loosen up its attachments, these attachments dissolve away. We experience this until the point where attachment is extinguished. Once attachment is quenched, The final step is to experience that the mind is free. Everything is free. The Pali texts use the phrase, throwing back. The Buddha said, at the end, we throw everything back. This means that we have been thieves all of our lives by appropriating the things of nature as I and mine. We have been stupid and have suffered for it. Now we have become wise 
and are able to give things up. At this last step of practice, we realize, oh, it isn't mine. It belongs to nature. We throw everything back to nature and never again steal anything. To learn the secret of Dhamma is to know that we should be attached to nothing whatsoever and then again, and then never again to become attached to anything. All is liberated. The case is closed. We are finished. There's a couple of things in that quote that I love and I think are helpful. The sense of throwing it back to nature. Somewhere to know things as nature is not so threatening as to think of, I don't exist, which seems so threatening. To really know that there is phenomena unfolding according to natural laws. That this is nature, our bodies, our mind. This is all part of nature. But where the suffering comes in is in that identification, a clinging appropriation. And just this sense of throwing it back, you know, letting it go, putting down the burden. And looking in our practice to know the simple moments where this is there, where there isn't the grasping, clinging. You know, where we just taking a sip of a cup of tea. There's just, you know, taking a step, a breath, a thought arising. Simple. And then just needing to explore where that identification happens. What's happening? I love when, you know, the sense of I am is strong, where there's a strong sense of self. To look right there, see what's happening. See what's being clung to. What's being identified with. If we aren't resisting or reacting to that sense of I am, it's much easier to explore. If we feel like we have to get rid of it, it will we'll get tighter and tighter in our practice. The exploration of anatta, I mean, I only know it from uh, having a relaxed mind. You know, to try and figure out, work out, rationalize, it gets really tight. But to have that simplicity of bare experience, bare attention, you know, just allowing things to be very simple.
we taste these moments. We, we get you know, an experiential, momentary understanding of when there is not this great burden of self, which is just a misperception. You know, we can really look at each of the aggregates, the body, the experience of the body. You know, it's elements playing out. This body made up of earth, air, water, fire, weaving together. We can know these elements. The Buddha says, people said, Although people view the aggregate of material qualities as a living being, in reality, they are not self, merely physical phenomena. He likened material form to being like a lump of foam. Lump of foam doesn't have much substance. It's insubstantial. As we connect with experience of, th- of this body. And, you know, this tends to be a strong place, my body. You know, really seeing this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. I don't know, if we saw our waste going down the sewage system into the very holding pond, would we go, there I am? <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> feeling, unpleasant, pleasant, neutral quality that arises with each experience on contact. This is one that, you know, often we don't recognize. And we'll find that often, um, you know, there'll be experiences that we like or wonderful. Uh, but we'll go, yeah, this, I know this experience is impermanent. And then it will go, and there will be suffering. And what we may not have noticed was the attachment to the pleasantness. You know, that sometimes it's, it can be quite subtle, but there, you know, just a tendency to identify, take ownership of, even the unpleasant. You know, it, <coughs> it too is there. I know I had one retreat that went for a long time being the just-how-I-like-it retreat and was just really wonderful. Um, And there was always the knowledge that it would change, things would change. But when it did, there was devastation. And I really think that there hadn't been the awareness of this attachment to the pleasant. So, you know, when, when things are pleasant, really noticing if there's a liking of it and allowing it to be recognized. 
<clears throat> the Buddha likened feeling to that of water bubbles. You know, they too are pretty insubstantial. Closely investigated, they appear void, hollow, and insubstantial. The next of the aggregates, that of perception, that which can recognize, name, label, and categorize. It's the part of the mind that cobbles together information, which is a really useful experience. So it's not that we want to get rid of these aggregates. That's not the problem. But it's the attachment, identification with perception as being I am. Tilopa, a great teacher, once said to his student Naropa, you are not bound by perceiving, but by clinging. So cut your clinging, Naropa. Clinging. Be likened perception to that of being a shimmering mirage. And, you know, I know having grown up on the prairies, there was lots of shimmering mirages off in the distance and could never quite get to them. (laughs) Then there's volitional formations. Mental activities that produce karma that which brings about physical, mental, or vocal activities of body, speech, and mind. It's the willing agent, that that initiates action. Often, there's a strong sense of I am. You know, as we stand up, I am standing, I am walking, I am moving. You know, and if I don't do it, who does it? But it's sitting. It's so interesting to watch intentions in our experience. Because when the mind is quiet, when it's not interfering, you can watch. There's the desire to scratch. So sitting and you know, the, the, feel the itching, feel the desire, an intention to move. And mindfulness is strong, and it just falls away. Nothing happens. Itching gets stronger. Desire comes back. Intention gets stronger. And it falls away. And then it comes back again, and it's stronger. And at some point, the intention is so strong that movement happens. And when we just watch that whole process we begin to see. It's like the intentions arising out of these different conditions coming together. It's not that I am doing it. I am scratching. At some point, that intention gained momentum and was followed by movement. the, The scene of intention really helps to break down this sense of I am. And we can't look for it. Again, this is where, you know, it, that creates too much tension in the mind. But by, you know, just pausing before movement, at some point we might see that volitional agent in the mind. Or, you know, you're walking and then suddenly you're turning 
turning is happening. But we begin to see the conditions coming. You know, there's a whole configurations of conditions that happen there. And then turning happens. And we just really see that when the mind is relaxed, at ease, and these conditions coming together. The Buddha likened volitional formations to the heartward of a banana tree that is empty, void, without substance. The last of these five aggregates being that of consciousness, that which knows, bare cognition. Consciousness is supported by feeling, perception, and volition. It um, arises in a moment of sense contact. Consciousness is what defines us as sentient beings. In a moment of seeing consciousness, where there is a sight, there is an eye door, they meet, it's like there's a spark, that spark is consciousness. And then there's seeing consciousness. The Buddha used this, uh, the image he used was that of a magician's display. Pretty illusory. These aggregates, all of them, are not a problem. It's the clinging that is the problem. I came across a discourse today that when I read, it was one of those times where I just read it and went, yes! <laughs> and it so fits for tonight's topic. Um, this is from the Samyutta Nikaya. And the Buddha was talking about how when consciousness is engaged or delighting in any of the other four aggregates, then the conditions are ripe for papancha or proliferation of events that, and these events, these phenomena, result in the arising and passing, the growing, increasing and expanding. Um, But if the delight for these aggregates is cut off or disengaged, then there is no support for the establishing of consciousness. And so this is what he, that was just kind of a brief summary of something in the, the um, sutta. And then this is what he said. He said, when that consciousness is unestablished, not coming to growth, non-generative, it is liberated. By being liberated, it is steady. By being steady, it is content. By being content, one is not agitated. Being unagitated, one personally attains nibbana. It's this delight, this lusting, this identification, where consciousness becomes established, proliferates, that we get, you know, realms and reels and movies and stories and dukkha. (laughs) We get dukkha. 
But when that, that cut is made, when there's not that clinging, not that delighting and not that lusting after, it's not the getting rid of, but it's that, that delighting, lusting, then that consciousness is unestablished, not coming to growth, non-generative. It is liberated. By being liberated, it is steady. By being steady, it is content. By being content, one is not agitated. Being unagitated, one personally attains nibbana. It's an exploration, a journey, looking in our own experience, looking in a simple way, mindfulness, wise attention, meeting this moment as it is. Allowing it to be as it is. I'd like to close tonight by sharing a practice poem about this journey or looking into the sense of self. It's called Taking Life Lightly. Letting go of me and the story that I weave, who'd ever thought how fun it could be? For all of the places I've clutched and defended, for all of the tears I've cried from grief, sorrow, and loss, or the suffering of me. My fingers grew tired, they had clutched so hard, and now dared to relax and to loosen their grip. Moments of peace, tranquility, and joy, a lightness of heart in this empty, cognizant, ever-changing space. And then there I'd be again, the one that wants and needs. I'd shrink and recoil at the very sight of me. Each time that I'd come, at some point I'd pass, letting go again of the suffering of me. Now I keep arising, but there's a giggle inside for jumping at opportunities of a birthplace for me. Each time that they pop, it's no more poor me, but laughter and humor as the mind becomes free. Letting go of this me, or just allowing life to be, without ever thinking that it belongs to me. So let's just sit for a moment.
May all beings come to know the true nature of their hearts and minds. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.